Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Ponos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. With my guest Grigory Yofe, we're talking today about Belarus. Since late summer, Belarus has been the scene of a broad popular uprising. To too many Belarusians, Alexander Lukashenko's officially announced landslide victory in the presidential election looked egregiously rigged. Following the August 9 votes, outraged crowds took to the streets. Lukashenko, who has held his presidential post for 26 years, attempted to squelch the protest. The police acted with extreme brutality. But if savage beatings had been intended to intimidate the protesters and force them back home, the effect was the opposite. Unexpectedly to Lukashenko, to outside observers, and likely also to Belarusians themselves, the protest grew larger, better organized, and even more unbending. Many leading protest figures, as well as rank-and-file protesters, have been jailed. Some of the leaders fled to neighboring countries but people continued to take to the streets. On some occasions, their numbers reached 200,000 people in a country of about 9.5 million. Mass rallies were not confined to the capital. Other Belarusian cities also became the scene of street protests. The Belarusian uprising has been accompanied by rapidly rising civic organization. New online resources have emerged that play a major role in organizing the rallies and marches. Broad and efficient self-help operation has supported families of those who were jailed or injured, as well as those who lost their jobs and incomes. Almost three months into this unparalleled public movement, Belarusians remain indomitable and strongly determined to force their president to step down. Many European countries, as well as the European Union, officially refuse to recognize the presidential election results in Belarus. To them, Lukashenko is not a legitimate president. Russia has expressed support to Lukashenko and condemned foreign nations' pressure on Belarus. But, as Vladimir Farolov, a prominent Russian foreign policy analyst, pointed out, beyond verbal, Russia's support has been moderate, which strengthens Russia's role as a potential mediator of the political crisis in Belarus. So far, Lukashenko has demonstrated strong resolve to stay in power. He can still rely on the loyalty of his elites. As we speak, there have been almost no defections among the members of his establishment. And however impressive the Belarusian protest may be, apparently it doesn't involve all Belarusians. There are still those in Belarus who support Lukashenko, and their number is not negligible. My today's guest, Grigory Yofe, professor of geography at Redford University in Virginia, is a long-time observer of Belarus. He has authored many publications about Belarus, and a few years ago, he met with Alexander Lukashenko and had a long interview with him. Hello, Grigory. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So my first question is, as a long-time observer of Belarus, were you too, like almost everybody else, I guess, surprised by the scale and tenacity of the protesters in Belarus? And how do you explain the sudden transformation of the generally docile Belarusians? If I remember correctly, you were unimpressed by earlier opposition movement in Belarus, sponsored by the West. Yes, exactly, on both counts, yes, was unimpressed, uh, and I have been uh, surprised by the scale uh, and by the achievements of the ongoing protest movement. Why? Well, 
you may or may not know that there's one word in the Belarusian language that from the point of view of uh, Belarusians themselves uh, conveys their quintessential character trait. Uh, this word is pomiarkovnost. The meaning of that word is somewhere between moderation and passivity. It is this self-portrait that was abruptly cast aside on August the 9th and for several days thereafter. And then every weekend, when up to 200,000 people showed up rallying in Minsk and significant protesting crowds gathered in five regional capitals, especially in Grodno and at times at Gomel. Just last Sunday, there was again a splash in protest activity when definitely more than 100,000 people were, were rallying in, in Minsk. So the expectations of uh, Belarusians' reaction to you know, what they see as uh, oppression, as vote rigging, and so on, were greatly exceeded. And that pertains to my expectations, too. So apparently, then, th th there's got to be a combination of factors that produce such a socio-political explosion, if you will. Uh, I uh, think that there are long-term and short-term factors at play here. In the former group, the long-term factors, I, I would name two. Exceptional longevity of Alexander Lukashenko at the helm of power, you know, 26 years, and, and gradual expansion of what became a kind of a reference group of Belarusians repelled by Lukashenko. Uh, initially, I would call, I, I would say on aesthetical grounds, that is expressing revulsion over his style of talking to his underlings, to his subordinates, uh, reminiscent of two environments that actually molded him, a Soviet state farm and the Soviet army. Initially, the group in question consisted uh, just of intellectuals viewing Lukashenko perhaps with a degree of exaggeration as a bumpkin, you know, as a hillbilly, as a rustic rural man. But with the passage of time, uh, this group expanded considerably and a lack of acceptance of Lukashenko's leadership style became a social norm for, uh, for quite a few people. So definitely these lasting factors alone you know, by themselves would not lead to a social explosion of this magnitude, especially in view of the fact that Lukashenko's success in shaping a fairly orderly welfare state has been steadily recognized too, and not just by Belarusians, but by their friends, relatives, and guests from Russia and Ukraine. It's not by accident, for example, that national surveys in Ukraine repeatedly named Lukashenko the most popular national leader of a foreign country. So several shorter-term factors added fuel to the fire. First, Lukashenko's casual pronouncements in regard to COVID-19, in regard to the pandemics, especially in the beginning, in, uh, in, the, in, in winter and early spring 2020, uh, these uh, pronouncements uh, infuriated many people. It's like, yes, somebody died, but he or she was shamelessly obese. Uh, and, and don't you worry, as riding a tractor or, or drinking some vodka uh, would easily cure your, your illness. 
The paradox of the situation was that the Belarusian state was reasonably well prepared, well equipped to fight the pandemics. And a lot was done. Uh, and yet dismissive and condescending statements by president who had already overstayed his welcome totally undermined public trust in his intentions. The Lukashenko lost what for a long time seemed to be his forte. I mean, his touch with reality and his inborn political instinct did not betray him at least up until four or five years ago. When you referred to my interviewing him. That was actually quite some time ago, back in 2011. I spent uh, the total of seven hours with Alexander Lukashenko, and I was at that time in the summer, in, in June and July of 2011. And at that time, I was actually very impressed, very much impressed by his command of the facts on the ground and by his immersion in everyday attitudes of different segments of the Belarusian society. Uh, I was impressed because by that time he had already been at the helm of power for uh, 17 years. However, this well-worn saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely apparently makes sense. So mm -hmm. eventually, eventually Lukashenko's understanding of Belarusian society got blunted or dulled, and numerous uh, sycophants or lackeys or toadies, however you call them, began to seriously filter information that reaches him. Why do I think so? Because only to getting tired and to being out of touch can one attribute his official electoral result of 80% of the vote cast uh, or, or allegedly cast in his favor, when in fact 51% would have been enough to win uh, the elections and would have been considered so much more believable than 80%. Incidentally, the most believable statistical analysis-based electoral protocols from 633 precincts, the protocols that were not rigged, revealed that Lukashenko won the totality of these presents with about 51% of the vote, whereas Mrs. Tikhanovskaya earned 38%. I obviously have no idea whether these results fit the uh, entire country's vote, because, you know, 633 presents is more than one-tenth uh, of the uh, entirety. Uh, but this analysis was published by the Russian non-governmental Daily Vedomosti on September uh, the 17th. Be that as it may, Lukashenko most probably did not win elections in the capital city of Minsk. He most probably did not win elections in Grodna, but he may have won in many other places. And yet, the unrealistic 80% outcome was announced and was perceived as an insult by many, particularly in the city of Minsk. And now the third factor, the kind of a short-term factor, was an unspeakable cruelty by riot police during the very first days of street protests. In one of most publicized cases, a video furtively recorded, apparently by some truck driver, on August 11, shows detainees forced to run through a gauntlet where they were repeatedly beaten by police batons. Even uh, famous national athletes were not spared uh, mistreatment by the authorities. 
for example, who used to play center on Belarus's women's national basketball team and who now plays uh, for a club in China, uh, was vacationing in her home country and was detained after participating in a rally in Minsk and sentenced to 15 days behind bars. Here's a quote from Levchenko's uh, pronouncement upon her release. For the last 12 days, she said, I've been sleeping on cold metal rods. Bed linen was confiscated. Uh, there was no hot water and we were not taken to the shower. The toilet flush was turned off. Because of these unsanitary conditions, I have lice. My pre-existing condition, a herniated disc, has worsened. Uh, unquote. Uh, yes, uh, indeed, a uh, very, very horrible picture. I would like you uh, to focus now uh, a little more on the Belarusian society itself. Indeed, the, uh, the beatings, the brutality, the savagery of the police has been thoroughly covered, and a lot of it can be found on the web with images, with videos, etc. In one of your publications, you wrote that the protests spurred civic organization of the Belarusian society, of the part of the society that shared those sentiments, those anti-Lukashenko rage and indignation. And I think you wrote that the civic organization was even more impressive than the protests themselves. Would you please talk about that? Yes, in fact, that's true. I consider this what you call civic organization to be one of the, I mean, progress of that kind, to be one of the major achievements of the protest movement. It seems like disposing of fear and rapid development of what they call horizontal ties and networks of mutual support that have been missing in that atomized society constitute major achievements. I have an an interesting quote from uh, Semyon Uralov, uh, the editor of Sonar 2050, an analytic portal devoted to the union state of uh, Russia and Belarus. Uh, he shared an account of the protest movement's achievements. His account is uh, all the more impressive that the author, Semyon Uralov, is no supporter of that movement at all. A quote, what what we see on the newscasts is just the tip of the iceberg, writes Uralov. Uh, the most interesting thing is happening now on the telegram channels of districts, micro-districts, and even individual residential blocks. I am, I am subscribed to a couple of such channels. Hundreds and thousands of participants, hundreds of messages a day, active self-organization and offers of mutual assistance. The distribution of propaganda materials and careful planning of future postings, the formation of groups for a weekly rally. Due to the lack of a dialogue, a dialogue with the authorities, the protest goes deep and begins to form public structures of resistance to the state. In fact, a non state network structure is beginning to form within the Republic. Rallies are just an irritation factor. The real work is in the field. So in the would-be early presidential elections, uh, the protest candidate is guaranteed to reach a second round, unquote. This is the, the end of the quote from Simeon Orello. So if a revolution is looked at as a process, not as a short-term and necessarily victorious act, 
then these achievements of cementing a protest movement are unlikely to be undone and will manifest themselves again at an opportune moment. Uh, the Belarusian yeah, very... so society indeed has been transformed. It is still by no means a consolidated society, but the protest movement has involved an, a, a large group of people and they have been holding on to a to fairly civilized forms of protest so far and it is telling too this will leave a lasting imprint yeah that's really interesting and i think we hear from the media from various online sources very little on that much more in the protests themselves i think there is one more very um, impressive element to this transformation of the Belarusian society and the protest movement. And this is a telegram channel, if I pronounce uh, Belarusian correctly. So yeah, how would you describe yeah, its yeah, role? Yeah. How would uh, well, you describe its role in the, in the anti-Lukashenko movement? Well, I would say that, uh, I wouldn't say I know all too much about Mehta, but it definitely has played an outstanding role in logistics and in day-to-day uh, -day and hour-to-hour and minute-to-minute supervision of uh, the protests. Go to that place, no, don't go there, turn left, then turn right, and so on. You know, this, 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 is, this is a very sophisticated operation, although in the media uh, they uh, only portrayed a couple of guys you know, like one of them uh, most widely uh, known, the Belarusian guys who actually went to Poland for study, for, for you know, they attending college there, and then they uh, turned out to be in charge of this uh, Telegram channel. But I have a suspicion that behind these guys, there is a sophisticated and well-funded operation. I do not know who stands behind that, but I have this feeling and I'm not alone. <laughs> Uh, okay. Okay. Probably uh, this this information will come out in the future. Now, so we've been talking about this impressive transformation of the Belarusian society. However, not every expectation of the movement has come true. For instance, there were expectations early on that the protest movement would be joined by a nationwide strike movement, which mm -hmm. probably would have dealt a very serious blow. On, on Lukashenko's stature. But this, if I'm not mistaken, this has not realized. Why not? And how does it affect the power of what uh, looks like the people's broad opposition to Lukashenko? Well, it's a, a difficult question. The, any attempt to address it w uh, should be adjusted by uh, what is going on today. You know, you uh, are probably referring to the ultimatum by Mrs. Tikhanovskaya that was issued, if I'm not mistaken, either on the 12th or on the 13th of October, to the effect that should Lukashenko not reside, excuse me, resign, and all political prisoners, uh, numbering now I think 96 people, be released, we would begin the national strike on the 26th. This national strike didn't come to fruition, but the this uh, splash in protest rallies that took place just one day prior to that on Sunday, October the 25th, was a great reminder. Uh, 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 it kind of uh, uh, 
was re-energizing the protest movement that, according to some observers, might already decline and kind of petered out. So you cannot say that the ultimatum worked entirely, but you cannot say that it failed because the protest movement appears to have a long life and it is not about to subside. Now, what sober-minded analysts within Belarus also have noticed is this. First, the movement, the protest movement, has failed to extend beyond the so-called creative class, college and high school students. The creative class and college and high school students Strikes on major industrial plants uh, have not materialized and not about to do so. Second, despite few widely publicized uh, acts of disobedience, particularly uh, on the part of some leading uh, Belarusian diplomats in uh, several countries like you know, in Spain, in Argentina, in uh, Slovakia, uh, the entire political uh, machine, especially law enforcement, has not experienced crack and retained a, an appearance of a monolith. Third, a routine opinion that, and, and this is important in, in the context of the question that you've just posed, a routine opinion that Lukashenko's political base consists of country and small town folks, as well as retirees and people with low level of education, falls short of reality. Yes, as a statistical trend, it is correct. But there are plenty of big city folks in Lukashenko's base. Uh, I personally know three small business owners in Minsk who are steadfast supporters of Lukashenko. I, I'm also you know, looking at uh, Facebook um, accounts of uh, many of these people, and they are uh, alive and well and very vigorous in their condemnations, not of Lukashenko, but of the uh, protest movement. Uh, initially, these people were kind of invisible for some identifiable reasons, but by now they have gained some visibility and the societal divide in Belarus is much closer to 50-50 than most starry-eyed observers uh, tend to think. So it's not so much society against the regime as it is two parts of society at longer heads with each other. The, the most reputable Belarusian sociologist, Oleg Manayev, uh, who has uh, had uh, 25 years of conducting quarterly, quarterly uh, national surveys of uh, public opinion in Belarus uh, and published uh, its results since 1992 up until 2016 when his uh, organization, NISEPI, uh, was actually terminated by the authorities. Uh, Manayev now lives in the United States actually not too far away from me in the state of Tennessee, uh, he took it upon himself to articulate this discovery that the Belarusian society is not as uniformed as it seemed. And he talked about that in his uh, interview to the Russian service of Deutsche Welle on October 4th. As he predicted in the preamble to that interview, uh, he was immediately challenged by quite a few emotional you know, revolutionary thinkers in the meantime however that other belarus other belarus the, the ones that stands behind lukashenko has shown multiple signs of life at least two analysts have recently suggested that 
Belarus has become the venue of the third color revolution that failed, following those in Venezuela and in Hong Kong. So that's my response to your question. So there is sort of a, as in a musical piece, a crescendo part and a diminuendo part. So this is the diminuendo part. So the picture that you have drawn points to um, what I mentioned in my introduction, that there haven't been almost any, almost no defections of the elites around Lukashenko, which actually proves that he is rather strong. And also, as you point out, he is still supported by a sizable portion of his population. However, we still have in Belarus this raging, uh, very acute political crisis. Uh-huh. And what is, in your view, what is the role of outside actors such as the West, the European Union, or West in more general terms, and Russia? I think you mentioned that Russia is basically the major player now that because the West tends to sever its ties with Belarus. So what can those outside players do to somehow put an end to this crisis? How can this be done? And if Russia plays a major role, what its role can be? What can it achieve? Well, it's a complex question. Uh, I see it as consisting of two parts. Uh, First of all, what, uh, theoretically speaking, can be done to bring this crisis to some kind of a resolution uh, that would uh, satisfy some critical mass of people living in Belarus? And what is the role of external factors, uh, external players, actors, in that process. As far as uh, the first part, it entirely depends on uh, how you construe, how you understand the the makeup of the Belarusian society. If you still believe that this is uh, just the society at large rebelling against Lukashenko and his uh, henchmen, and there is no other solution but surrender without preconditions, then it is unlikely that it is going to happen anytime soon. If, however, you believe that Belarusian society is not homogenous and there is also a a part which is not protesting, then the only way um, is uh, through dialogue, through negotiations. Obviously, Lukashenko understands that and he tries to enact the constitutional reform that actually they agreed upon with Vladimir Putin during their extended talk in Sochi on the 14th of September when Lukashenko paid a visit. It seemed like the Russian side insisted on a two-year transition period throughout which the constitutional reform that would transfer much of power into the hands of the parliament so the uh, republic is not going to be as super presidential as it currently is, and then there will be new elections. It also seems that Lukashenko is trying to extend his uh, staying at the helm of power at least uh, till the next elections, which are supposed to be in 2025. So. Having said this, we have already, I have already invoked one external actor, Moscow, which plays the central role. What Moscow is, what the Kremlin seems to be willing to accomplish is easier said than done. Obviously, you can conduct some kind of a reform that would more power with the parliament. But the, the point is to 
transition in such a way that Moscow would still have some political affiliations that would be powerful enough to, you know, to sort of be conduits of uh, the Russian influence. The specificity of the political uh, system in Belarus has been that Lukashenko tried his best throughout the entire his entire tenure, which lasted 26 years, to up uh, to uproot, to eliminate, to uh, he used the scorched earth tactic to eliminate any kind of uh, pro-Russian um, affiliations in Belarus because he wanted to be uh, the sole interlocutor with the Kremlin and. Had there been uh, some uh, other affiliations uh, in favor of tightening bonds with Russia even more, then uh, the Kremlin uh, could have easily uh, replaced Lukashenko by the representative of these affiliations. So there's basically vacuum on that side of the political spectrum. And it takes time. You cannot do it overnight to implant such an organization to enhance their status, for example, to that of a political party that would play a significant role in, in political life. So on the one hand, they want, they understand that they uh, should get rid of uh, Lukashenko as soon as possible. On the other hand, they can't afford to do so. As far as uh, the West is concerned, I have already mentioned that uh, in view of uh, categorical condemnations uh, of Lukashenko's acts, the, the European Union largely uh, severed its uh, ties with Minsk, and with that comes uh, the uh, diminution, if not the uh, evaporation of its uh, entire influence, and it had quite, a, uh, quite an influence. As you may know, Lukashenko didn't even uh, respond to uh, uh, the call by Angela Merkel. In contrast to uh, Angela Merkel, uh, Lukashenko did respond to a telephone call by um, Mike Pompeo, the American Secretary of State. He unexpectedly called Lukashenko last uh, Saturday morning, uh, and they had a 30-minute conversation. What they talked about, of course, is not entirely clear. One thing is absolutely clear is that uh, solicited a release of uh, an American citizen. Actually, uh, Vitaly Shklarov, a political consultant who is both Belarusian and American citizen and who is married to uh, an American diplomat in Kiev. And so this release did take place. It would be uh, completely stupid on my part, however, to believe that that was the sole purpose of uh, Pompeo's call. So apparently there were other aspects of the uh, conversation. Some of them were made public, but most of them, I think, were not. The one that was made public was Pompeo's assurance that NATO at large and its two members, Lithuania and Poland, which are particularly accused by the official Minsk of meddling in the internal affairs of Belarus, that these entities present no danger to Belarus. But apparently that uh, again, was not the only thing that was talked about. So, judging also by the fact that by the end of the conversation, Alexander Lukashenko conveyed his uh, best greetings to Donald Trump and expressed, um, uh, you know, his good wishes regarding the uh, upcoming elections, it is also indicative of some kind of connections. Indeed, Pompeo uh, did visit Minsk on the 1st of February, 
2020, and uh, so there is some kind of relationships there. Other than that, I uh, do not know what to say. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, the role of the United States might actually change. And even though the situation in Belarus remains uncertain at this point, by the time our conversation is posted, at least we will know whether Trump actually will be reelected or or not. Or maybe yes. there will be a new administration in the White House. Thank you so much. Thank you.